He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 6 Mr. Mixelblick In the weeks after meeting Batman, Clark set himself to learning all he could about Bruce Wayne. How did he know about Krypton? And what was his connection to Luther? The parallels between the two men's lives were uncanny. Both were the only child of a wealthy family. Both were orphaned in their youth. Wayne's parents were shot in a mugging when he was only nine. Less than a year later, Luther's parents died in a car wreck while he was in his early teens. From there, the two men appeared to have gone down very different paths. Lex Luthor had poised himself as a brilliant prodigal visionary, while Bruce Wayne became known for his indulgent lifestyle. Neither of them came across as trustworthy to Clark. Luther felt as though he were always conniving up some scheme, and Bruce Wayne, obviously, was more complex than his public image let on. Clark wondered what dressing up as a bat said about his mental health, yet he didn't think he was in any position to judge. He too was wearing a cape and trying to be a hero. Like Luther and Wayne, he was also an orphaned son of a powerful family. Clark felt bad for young Bruce and adolescent Lex. He was lucky to have been taken in by such loving parents as the Kents. Considering that out of he, Luther, and Wayne, most of them had donned capes and superhero monikers, Clark began wondering if all vigilantes were orphans. A group of vigilante crime fighters was forming on the west coast in Starling City. Through bits and pieces in the news, Clark heard their stories unfold over several weeks. The first of the Starling City vigilantes stood out because of their affinity for using a bow and arrow. While Batman attempted to scare the criminals of Gotham, this archer had something of a Robin Hood theme. Clad in a green hood and mask, he was referred to by several names, the Arrow, the Emerald Arrow, or most commonly, the Green Arrow. With time, he began working alongside a woman known as the Black Canary. She was no archer like he was, but her fighting ability was notorious. Most infamous was her voice. She was said to have a scream that could unleash a sonic blast. Meanwhile, in Central City, not too many states away from Kansas, word of another incredible hero began to spread. They called him the Flash, and he ran so quickly he could barely be seen. This phenomenal ability didn't stop him from posing for pictures. If anything, it provided him more time for photo opportunities. In each of these pictures, he could be seen dressed in a red bodysuit. It covered him from head to toe, exposing only the lower part of his face. On either side of his head were tiny yellow wings in the shape of lightning bolts. Another lightning bolt sat prominently at the center of his chest, bright yellow, like his boots. The costume was impressive. Clark was glad Martha had redesigned his costume when she had. The legend of the Flash's speed was astounding. The way he was described, it was as though he was in every place at once. Superman wondered if this hero was from another world, like he was. Or did the Flash come by his powers in some other way? For Clark, these other heroes became a quiet obsession. He dearly wished for some time to dive into the matter, 
yet his life left little room for hobbies. On the way home from a refinery inferno in Alaska, Clark found himself flying over the same forest he had once spent his summer in, years ago. The familiar fragrances of the season beckoned him from below. He returned to his favorite glen with a flurry of butterflies and birds, closely followed by a family of deer and several squirrels. Clark transformed back into his earthly self and loosened his tie. Reaching inside his breast pocket, he pulled out a newspaper he had picked up that morning and sat on a nearby rock to read it. He had recently taken to packing things inside of his pockets. Though he did not know what became of his clothes when he transformed into Superman, he found that everything he had on him reappeared upon turning back into Clark Kent. The animals settled down around Clark as he read. The heroes in Starling had gained a third member, though Clark remembered mention of this man before, using the moniker Wildcat. He was a retired street fighter famous for his masked feline persona. Another article, devoted just to Black Canary, speculated that her sonic scream was so precise that she could aim it at small targets. It was a fascinating read, but it was largely all speculation. In Central City, a holiday was being declared in the Flash's honor. A festival was held to commemorate the occasion. It was promised to be powered by the Flash himself, running on a treadmill. Within a few minutes, the Flash had fully charged the batteries. It turned out several robberies were being planned throughout the city that day. Yet with the batteries charged, the Flash was free to intercede all over Central City, to the great dismay of many criminals. The legends of the Flash's powers astounded Clark. They were almost unbelievable. But who was he to doubt them? His own ability seemed to have no limit. Clark even surprised himself. He simply did what needed to be done. Rarely thinking it through, he seldom asked himself what was and wasn't possible. Just that morning, he had discovered a new power. When the burning refinery was threatening to explode yet again, Clark exhaled a frigid wind with his breath, smothering the fire in an icy storm. Putting his newspaper and clothes aside, Clark swam through the rivers he remembered so fondly. The cool water refreshed his thinking. As he got dressed after his swim, he wondered if he could talk Perry White into having him write about the trio in Starling. Maybe he could eventually cover the flash. Taking one last breath of the sweet summer air, Clark turned back into Superman and continued home to Metropolis, intent on talking to Perry. As he soared over the vast northern forest, an especially tiny person, best described as a leprechaun, appeared sitting cross-legged before him as he flew. Clark was surely traveling at hundreds of miles per hour, yet this miniature man in the most unusual clothes had not a hair on his head affected by the wind. He put no effort into flight as he spoke to Clark. Well, look at you. You are the spitting image of your father as a boy. Unsure what he was seeing, Clark stopped in midair. The tiny man stopped along with him, as though he had never been moving at all. Clark stammered a moment before attempting the most basic question he could think of. Excuse me, who are you? Oh, my apologies. Let me properly introduce myself. While floating in the air in front of Clark, the impish sprite uncrossed his legs, stood up, and bowed deeply. I am none other than the High and Mighty, King of Fairy Kind, the one and only Mixoplick, at your service. Uh, look, Mr. Mixoplick, I'm not so sure. Before Clark could finish that sentence, Mixoplick's impish face lit up with a wry smile. Mr. Mixoplick, I like the sound of that. Yes, Mr. Mixoplick indeed. It is about time. 
In fact, we are going to be making some changes around here. And with a blink, nod, and click of his heels, the trees in the forest below them were replaced by giant candy canes. Simultaneously, Clark's daydream from moments ago were replaced with a complete doubt in reality altogether. That's much better, though much work still needs to be done. Try and keep up. Again, with no effort, while standing in midair facing Clark, Mixelplik shot away backwards, quickly to the south. Clark took chase too late. He could not keep up with the Fairy King, though finding his trail of chaos was not difficult. Wherever anyone crossed his path, their home or their car or whatever they were interacting with was transformed into some cookie or other baked good. Clark saved these people from their sugary death traps and continued to chase after Mr. Mixelplik. The trail of confectionery chaos came to a halt in Central City. There, Clark found Mixelplik, frustrated as he struggled to land a spell on the blurred streak of red that Clark could only assume was the Flash. A major bridge had been turned into gummy candy, and with incomprehensible speed, the Flash was saving the people on the bridge from their gummy candy cars. When Mixoplex saw Clark had caught up, he began barking orders. Grab him, and hold him still so I can turn him into a tortoise. Ignoring the little man, Superman rushed to the bridge, letting time shift around him as he did. He glanced over to make eye contact with the Flash. Together, without any words, they improvised their evacuation strategy. Watching this unfold in real time, Mixelplik was unsure whether Superman was chasing him or not. Once everyone was off the bridge, Superman and the Flash had a brief moment to actually talk. Hey, you must be Superman. I'm the Flash. Good to meet you. I kind of guessed. Yeah, right? Is there anything else I can do to help? Actually, there are a few things. You're pretty quick, and I'd love to race you sometime. But what I really need from you right now is to get this guy out of here. And yeah, it's good to meet you too. Sorry it's not under better circumstances, but seriously, he seems to like you, so please, PLEASE get him out of here. Clark wasn't so sure he had that kind of influence over Mixelplik, but he never even got the chance to try. Mixelplik had grown bored and taken off to the west. Clark took chase, following the wake of colorful mayhem left behind. Pure nonsense spread across the land, which was now littered with tree-sized flowers and bumper car highways. Superman's pursuit slowed as he saved Mixelplik's victims along the way. Following the trail of surreal deluge, he was led to Starling City. Starling City's downtown plaza had been transformed into a medieval archery contest. Residents of the city were dressed up in Renaissance Fair costumes. Most of them seemed under some spell, cheering on the event. Though the two characters who were clearly meant to play Robin Hood and Maid Marian were not cooperating with the charade. They were shackled into their roles. She, in the Royal Spectator's area, and he, at the Archer's firing area, across from the targets. Superman wanted to shut this game down before anyone was hurt. Now look here, Mixelplik. This ends now. Oh, listen to that insolence. Look here, boy. Whatever tirade Mixelplik had in store for him was interrupted by an air-piercing sound. The sonic shockwave stunned both he and Superman, sending them tumbling to the ground. They hit at the same time and were equally disoriented. Struggling to regain his senses, Superman took his chance to grab Mixelplik. Yet his hands closed down on nothing. The little elf had vanished, this time leaving no trail in any direction. Clark looked around to see that the woman being held captive had broken free. Having thrown aside the cumbersome gown Mixelplik had put her in, she was clad in an all-black bodysuit. Clearly, this was the Black Canary. While Clark was still recovering from her famous canary cry, 
She was running toward the archer, who was undoubtedly the green arrow. He was shackled and appeared to be resisting the effects of maybe being drugged or put under some kind of spell. Realizing what the canary was attempting, Superman dashed over and broke the arrow's bonds. As he did so, he couldn't help notice under the green arrow's mask was the young billionaire, Oliver Queen. Superman wondered just how many rich playboys were playing superhero. Clark remembered reading that Queen's parents had both died, though he was pretty sure their deaths had been a decade apart. His father's murder had been heavily publicized a few years back. Was this theory about orphan vigilantes correct? With the arrow freed, Black Canary turned to Superman. Thanks for that. Sorry you got caught up in my cry. Oh, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm sorry Mr. Mixoplick put you all through that. Who now? Oh, um, yeah, I don't know how to explain. Was that guy with you? Uh, I probably better go find him. Black Canary crossed her arms, her brow furrowed under the domino mask covering her eyes. With her and Arrow safe, Clark excused himself and flew off. He didn't know why, but he felt embarrassed by all of this, as though it was his fault. Flying out of Starling, he had no idea where he was going. Mixoplick had disappeared altogether. Clark figured he could tune into the news and figure out where he went, but that would do him little good. Superman was powerless to this tiny person. All of reality seemed powerless to Mixoplick. Clark needed time to think. Just as he had visited his old stomping grounds in the Canadian wilderness, he realized it had been a long time since he had been to his family's crystal palace in the north. He altered his direction and flew to the Arctic. Arriving at the palace, he found the opening had once more become iced over. Yet the surrounding area was not entirely frozen as it had been that winter. This time, Clark noticed there were giant doors off their hinges, peeking out of the glacier nearby. With more precision than he used upon his first visit, Clark punched the block of ice hindering his passage and it crumbled in front of him. Into the icy tomb he descended to call forth the holographic ghosts of his parents. When the images of Jarrell and Laura illuminated in front of him, it took Clark a moment to remember why he had come. Their presence, even as holograms, touched him deeply. Thinking of the mayhem happening in the world outside, Clark asked them, Who is Mixoblick? And how do I stop him from wreaking havoc? They both stood silent as though a programmed response was missing. Jarrell's hologram explained. When your great-grandfather first created life on Earth, he built in certain mechanisms to better automate its function. The laws of physics are more malleable than some creators prefer. For this reason, it is common to use a kind of stopgap failsafe mechanism. This is done by introducing a fairy realm to operate in the background enabling life to continue. The Kingdom of Fae can regulate a stable reality, while also allowing a Maker to directly access and alter that reality in what would otherwise be impossible ways. Clark thought he understood the gist of what he was hearing, but he couldn't quite make sense of it, exclaiming, What about Mixoplick would possibly stabilize reality? Again, Jarrell paused a very long time before he continued. The powers of fairy kind are only controlled through their king. For generations, our family has had his loyalty. He is held at our service by using his true name, Kliplixum. He will insist upon saying his name backwards, but do not be fooled. The spell will be broken, and he will do with reality on Earth as he pleases. This news sunk into Clark with a sense of dread. Wait, his name is Kliplixum? 
But what do I do if I've already called him Mixelblick? Jarrell's long pauses began to worry Clark, yet his father's hologram eventually continued. The only way to gain control of Clipplixum is to trick him into saying his own name once more. Jarrell's hologram returned to silence. Clark pleaded, But how do I do that? I do not know. The last time he spoke his true name was the first time he ever spoke, after he was first created. He hasn't said his name since then? He has not, and he will not. Mother, do you know how I can make Clip Plixum say his name? Laura's hologram had but one reflection to offer. Just this, Clip Plixum likes to play. Do not fight him, play with him. Clark was again perplexed. How was he to outthink this trickster? He spent the next two days in the Crystal Palace training his mind for a showdown with the Fairy King. When it came time to find Clipplixum, Clark thought he had a good guess as to where he had gone. Just days ago, chasing him had led Clark to the Flash, Green Arrow, and Black Canary. He had been thinking of all of them after he swam in the rivers just before Clipplixum first appeared in front of him. There was only one other place that Clark's mind had wandered to that day. As Clark expected, the Fairy King sat upon a throne on the roof of the Daily Planet. Yet Clark had not expected the building to be covered in a decadent cake frosting. The globe atop its spire transformed into a giant cherry. Superman landed before the throne. Clipplixum scowled at him as though he were a disobedient child. Well, well, the prodigal son finally returns. Have you come to grovel? I hope you have come to grovel. There has not been nearly as much groveling today as I would like. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? When Clark responded, he spoke backwards the entire time. In the past two days, he had mastered the ability to speak backwards. We were Naomi, we were Which translates forward to, I'm sorry, do I know you? Mixoplick liked this game and immediately joined along speaking backwards. Of course you know me, I'm your king. King? Which king? I have a king? Indeed you do, I am your king. What happened? Did you forget? I did forget. Who am I? What's my name? You are Kalel, son of Jarel. And who are you? What's your name? Why, my name is. The sprite gave Clark a cautious look. He stopped speaking backwards and returned to speaking normally. Now hold on. You're not going to trick me. Clark continued to only speak backwards. Trick you? I only asked for your name. Is that too much to ask? Clipplixum was careful to not speak backwards. Well then, let me introduce myself. I am Mixoplick. Clipplixum? How dare you call me that? It's Mixoplick. Clipplixum. Mixoplick. Clipplixum? Mixoplick. Clipplixum? Mixoplick. Mixoplick? Clipplixum. Oh, oh dear. Well, there you have it. Can't say it wasn't fun while it lasted. Well played, good sir. Mixoplick, at your service. With those words, the elf jumped out of his throne, up into the air, and into a deep bow. This time, Superman looked at him sternly. Clipplixum? Yes, sir? Put all this back the way it was. Put what back? Put the world back, exactly as it was before you started wrecking havoc. All at once, sir. Just do it. Yes, sir. 
And with an unusual dance, a blink, and a nod, Kalel and Kliplixen were back above the forest in Canada. It felt as though it were the exact moment they had met. Wait, what just happened? Well, you said put it all back, so I had to take us back two days earlier. Now hold on. Did we just time travel? Do you have the ability to travel through time? Not really, sir. You just happened to have phrased that request in a particular way that resulted in time travel. Not something I can do every day, rarely on purpose. Though, like I said, it's not really time travel. Everyone's memories of the past two days will remain like a vague memory. Memories and dreams are not my department. So then, is there anything else I can do for you, sir? Kalel almost dismissed him before he had a better idea. Yes, actually there is. I need you to repair the doors on the Crystal Palace in the north. That's it? You just want me to repair them? Shall I cast an enchantment? Make them only open for your family? Well, yeah. Now that you mention it, can you make it so the doors only open for myself and my friends? I'm insulted you even have to ask. But fine. If that is the best you can come up with, consider it done. And feel free to call me if you need me. With a wink, a shake, and the sound of a bell, Clip Hickson vanished. Clark hung suspended in the air by himself. He took a moment to reconsider how he might spend the next two days now that he had them to do all over. He started by going to the Crystal Palace to see his parents' holograms. Only this time, he did not ask about Clip Plixum. Instead, Clark asked them about their lives and experiences. He wanted to get to know them as people. The next day, Superman went to Central City and Starling to meet the Flash, Arrow, and Canary once more. Meeting people for the first time again proved to be an odd feeling, though not all bad. He hit it off with the Flash on their second encounter. The Flash, once again, challenged him to a race. The Green Arrow was a bit aloof the second time he met Superman. He still remembered the incident with Kliplixum, but only as a bad dream. He didn't let it stop him from offering Superman his contact information. I change phones every few months or so, but if you need us anytime soon, this number will reach me. Black Canary said very little at all. She was still undecided about Superman. It was too late to make another first impression, but Clark was glad nonetheless for another opportunity to meet them. He was glad to know there were more heroes in the world to call on when help was needed, yet he couldn't think of any reason why he might need their help. He had no weaknesses, at least none that he knew of. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Son of L is written and independently produced by myself. You can support this production by rating and reviewing the show, recommending it to friends, and finally, by becoming a patron at patreon.com bluefoot. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC Comics and characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Mort Weisinger, George Papp, Dennis O'Neill, Dick Dillon, Robert Kaninger, Carmine Infantino, and Ira Yarbrough. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Chad Crouch, Poddington Bear, Jack Anderton, Vonnie, Scott Holmes, Phasma, Johnny Ripper, and Jody Pitkanen. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com. Try playing a game in a no-lose scenario. And be sure to listen to the next episode. Chapter 7. Just a Bit of Kryptonite.